Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I have an interview with Rich Roll, a best-selling author, podcast and vegan ultra-athlete. Just a little backstory, I met Rich three years ago when recovering from addiction myself and I found myself at a retreat in Italy he was running with his wife and since then Rich has become a friend and a mentor and he helped me launch my own career as a podcaster, Rich being a very successful podcaster himself. So part of this interview is just us discussing our experience in media and in podcasting and some of the background to our relationship. Now Rich has an incredible story. At 31 he checked himself into rehab for alcohol addiction and he is now a vegan ultra-athlete. Rich's addiction saw him spend time in jail, it cost him friends, relationships and almost his successful career as an entertainment lawyer. And after spending 100 days in rehab, he did manage to overcome his addiction and return to his career in law, but he still wasn't prioritising his health. He was 50 pounds overweight, struggling with everyday tasks and approaching his 40th birthday. He decided to do something about it. Rich became a vegan, he took up running and started swimming again, something he hadn't done since university. Since then, Rich has gone on to compete in numerous triathlons and ultra triathlons. And in 2018, he completed his first Ultraman, an invitation-only 320-mile endurance race held over three days on the big island Hawaii. In 2009, he returned to the same event and managed an incredible sixth-place finish. He was also named by Men's Fitness Magazine as one of the 25 fittest men in the world, and he attempted to complete five Ironmen in five days on five Hawaiian islands, which is covered in his book. I think he actually ended up doing it in seven days, but still an unbelievable feat. So when I was in LA, I really wanted to get Rich on the show. I just wanted to talk to him. Just, you know, I owe him so much and I just wanted to have a chat with him. So I reached out, he agreed to do it. So yeah, I spoke to Rich. We talked about his struggles with addiction, relapsing and becoming a vegan athlete and prioritizing health. But before we get into the interview, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please do check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having any controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you are enjoying Defiance and you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. You can leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. You can follow me on social media at Peter McCormack and you can share it out with your friends and family. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Because I used to have it start with um, me saying, you know, hello, but I always think it's kind of interesting when you have it starting mid-conversation. Yeah, I like that too. I stole that from you, though. You did, but I I stole that from Mark Maron. Oh, right. Yeah. I think I noticed it more in your videos. When I started watching your videos, uh-huh. they were coming in. So, so yeah, I've only had one go wrong of all the time with the sound. What you, happened? Do you ever have it when you're, like, at the end, you're worried? You do the mm-hmm. play straight away to see if it picked up. Mm-hmm. So I did one, and I hadn't switched on my channel. So I had the guest speaking, but I didn't have any of mine. Ah. Uh, yeah. Were you not wearing headphones? No, because I don't usually wear headphones. Yeah. 
And so what I could do, though, is because, you know, in both channels, it will faintly pick up you in the background. Yeah. I had to write down everything I'd said. And then I had to re-record all oh. my bits. <laughs> I would not have done that. Well, I didn't want to do the whole interview again. Uh-huh. Because uh, it was an in-person one. But also... In doing it, when I was, you know what it's like. You know when you do your scripts, and then afterwards, you try and record your scripts. That's the worst bit for me. I, I hate it. Yeah. It's the hardest part of the whole thing. It's the most unnatural. Yeah, because like now we'll just talk, right? But when you're doing the scripts, you're trying to read it and you're trying to get a tone across, but you'll say a word wrong, and I'm like, oh fuck it. And so when I was re-recording those scripts, I couldn't do that. Uh, sorry, re-recording my questions, I couldn't. I couldn't do that. I had to get every one right and get right. the tone right. But also what I then had to do is I had to edit the entire sound file so any of my background bits were taken out on theirs. Basically, it took me like four hours. Right. That was such a pain. God. I know. I would not have done that. I've, I've, I have, I've done 450 of these. And I, I think over the last, it's coming up on seven years, there's maybe been three or four where something went wrong. One, I completely, it didn't record anything. Like I had no, the file got corrupted or something. Oh. One time when the battery went dead on this thing, that's why I use an external battery because these things go through batteries really quick. I don't know what you use to record. And then uh, one where the card filled up and I do wear headphones so I can pay attention and I use the, you know, what I hear in my, in my headphones as an indication that it's working, but when the card filled up, it didn't tell me that it had stopped <laughs> recording. I've had the card fill up. So, Yeah, I've had the card fill up, uh -huh. and that happened, and I noticed, though, about 10 minutes in, so we re-round and we did that oh, bit from where good. it was again. I've never run out of battery, because I think it was you told me to use the Pat Flynn course, mm -hmm. and I think it was him. It was either him or Tim Ferriss said, always have fresh batteries. Right, but this makes it so that you don't need a fresh battery because this will go on for like 20 hours. Well, that's the new thing I didn't yeah. know you could do. Or you can plug it into an external power source, but never rely on the batteries in the thing. These Zooms run through batteries really quick. So I, you have to be replacing them like all the time. Yeah, I am doing that. I've, I've got them down here. Yeah, no, this is actually <laughs> Jordan Harbinger taught me this and I've been using it this way ever since. But you're a gadget addict. You told me that. Yeah, but no, I, I keep it simple. I think especially when you're, like me, like you bring your kit on the road and you're doing mm -hmm. a lot of interviews while you're traveling, you want to keep your setup pretty simple. Uh -huh. You can have better audio if you haul a ton of equipment, but then with each added piece of equipment, you multiply the opportunity for something going wrong. And these zooms like have revolutionized the whole thing because the sound yep. quality is fantastic. Mm -hmm. They're super small. I used to do do it with a huge soundboard that I never really could figure out figure out how to use properly. And it didn't even sound that good. And it was like I was lugging this thing through airports for years. And then when you get the other end and you open up your case, you've got that slip in there. Yeah. They've been through your stuff. Yeah, oh, every time. And yeah. then it, the, the, I have one of those steel cases uh -huh. and when it pops up on the um, luggage carousel, the latches are always undone. Yeah. Like they don't even bother to close it back up. Well, every single time I go through, it gets taken to one side. But the funny thing, the first time I traveled with it, I also had my, oh, what was that little video camera thing? I can't remember. But it had a 12-volt battery. So I had 12-volt battery, wires, and I had my big lead-weighted microphones. Uh -huh. So it gets taken to one side. This guy comes out, and he takes me to one side, and he says, what have you got in the bag? 
and I was like, audio equipment. He's like, no, what have you got in the bag? I was like, I've got audio equipment. I'm a, <laughs> yeah. I'm a podcaster. He was like, we've got to search the bag and you're going to have to come with us. So he took me into the side room. They opened up the case and he opened up. He said, okay, so basically you've got the ingredients for a bomb. <laughs> he said, oh he God. said, it's always 12 volt batteries. You know, the square ones. Yeah. They're always the ones used on bombs. He said, you've got a bunch of wires and the big lead waste. They look like Semtex. On oh the my thing. God. I know. I was fucking panicking. It was awful. So, uh, wow. I've never had that experience. And I've gone through the Middle East and all kinds of crazy places. How many of these have you been through traveling? Uh, f- probably four or five. Yeah. yeah. They, they get busted up. Yeah. They're not the sturdiest, but they're definitely the best mics. Yeah. I've, I've gone through, I'm on my f- third and fourth now. Uh-huh. Um, Do you think anyone's interested in this? I don't know. <laughs> this is good for me. I love this. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other thing. I'm like, where do I release this? Because part of me wants to just release it on my normal show because I know it's a Bitcoin show, but I think the people are interested in the fact that, you know, how I got here and the journey here and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll go through that. But also I've got this other thing coming up, Defiance, which is about, you know, about people standing up for things. And you've obviously campaigned for veganism and animal welfare and various other things related to the environment. So I do want to cover that. I might just put it out on all of them. Well, my suggestion would be if you're definitely going to start this new show, Defiance, the best way to launch that show is to do it on the shoulders of what Bitcoin did. Mm -hmm. So I would do what a lot of podcast networks do, which is when they're launching a new show, they use an episode of the currently popular show to introduce the first episode of the new show. So you'll, it'll, yeah, it, it, w- it would go, this would go on what Bitcoin did and you would introduce it as like, this is the first episode of Defiance or whatever episode, okay. and then share it on that platform as well. Do you and that way you can get some of that audience to, to move laterally over. I got something funny to tell you as well. If you go on iTunes and you search for cryptocurrency, you come up before me. No way. I swear to God. Why would that be? I have no idea. So I'm fine on Bitcoin. That word might have come up once in you know 900 hours of audio. Well, I did have Jack Dorsey on. It might be But that. we didn't even really talk about it. I know. I did a lot it. of people were mad at me because I didn't get into Bitcoin with him. Yeah, but everyone else did it with him. He did yeah. his little roadshow, right? Yeah. I still haven't got him on. But yeah, so I did a search for cryptocurrency and up came you. And I was like, where am I? That's bizarre. Was it a particular episode or just my show? Do you know what? I can't remember. I'll, mm. uh, well, I've got my laptop. We're going uh, to I talked about crypto with James Altucher. It must be your clout now then. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. So the uh, series of things that had to happen for this to happen right now yeah. is quite mad, really. It is. So my friend Louise, who's very much like Julie, she would be saying, this is the universe. And I always struggle to... It's always the universe, <laughs> Peter. Yeah, but I always struggle. It can't be anything other than the universe. Yeah, but I'm like... I want to believe, but other times I don't. And then, you know, there's a mad story about my mum with the rainbows. But I was thinking about it on the way over. I should have written written it down. The things that had to happen. Firstly, my wife had to leave me. Mm -hmm. So my company had to collapse. My mum had to get sick and go vegan. So I became interested in veganism, although I'd fallen off the wagon. But um, also, I had to... Have I told you the story about the car? How Mm -hmm. I discovered your podcast? Mm -hmm. So I bought a new car. And it was the first one I had that connected to my phone. So I plugged my phone in and it was like like revolutionary. Music's on straight away. And I went into work and I was telling one of my colleagues and he said, you should get into podcasting. So I went on Google and I searched for top 10 podcasts. Up came the Rich Roll podcast. 
And the first episode I listened to was the guy who broke into a neighbor's house. He had a drinking problem, broke into his neighbor's house, ended up getting accused of sexual assault because he got into his neighbor's oh, bed. Oh, Joseph Naus. Joseph yeah. Naus, yeah. So, and I was like, oh, this is a great podcast. So, you know, got into your podcast. That was a very intense one. Yeah, it was a good, good show. It was a great first one uh-huh. to listen to. And then what happened was, after I'd listened to that, I'd gone home and I searched you up. But instead of your website coming up, your trip in Italy came up. So I thought, well, I've got to go on this trip. I've just discovered veganism and discovered your podcast. So I obviously wrote, spoke to Mel. They had one place left. Mm -hmm. And I took that final place. (laughs) It's so crazy because my memory of that was, I mean, just for people that are listening, every year my wife and I put together this retreat. We go to this incredible villa in Tuscany and we take a group of 40, 45 people through a seven-day Pretty intense, but also magical and super fun experience. We eat plant-based food, we cook, we do yoga, we meditate, we go trail running, all these things. And the people that show up for this tend to be people who are longtime listeners of the podcast or people that have read my book or our cookbooks and have been kind of following along with our what we've been doing for a while. And in walks Peter and the first thing he says is like, I don't know why I'm here. Like, I don't, you know, I didn't even know who you guys were like a week ago. Like I've listened to one podcast episode, <laughs> Yeah, and you are, but you have so much charisma. Like you brought so much life to the group. Like you made it super fun. I was kind of going through a mental breakdown at the yeah. time. <laughs> but you were very, um, you allowed yourself to be very vulnerable and you were demonstrative with what you were going through. Like you were open, you were an open book. Like you, you arrived with your arms spread out wide ready to receive this experience. And I think it was really good for you. Like, I think it made a huge impact on you. Well, definitely. I mean, so yes, I turned up. I did read the book before I arrived, though, because I was like, I've got to read the book. I have to. I think I read it about three days beforehand. And then Mm -hmm. there was that other bit of synchronicity, obviously, what happened with your marriage. Mm -hmm. And it was a very similar story. And I was like, what is going on here? And I get there, and you've left a present for us. Do you remember there was like, uh, I can't remember what it was, but you remember. wrote everybody a note uh-huh. and you wrote me a note saying, I can't remember what the words were, but I've been exactly, I've been through exactly what you've been through. Mm-hmm. I understand. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. And then that first morning we went out for a run and then you're there and I'm like, I get a bit nervous. And then you end up jogging up next to me and we have a bit of a chat and then, yeah, I mean, it, it was a great week, but that was only the start of like a bunch of things because I obviously came out to LA and I saw you again. We hung out and hung out with Julie and the kids. And then the Bitcoin thing started happening. I was like, right. Right, you, you skipped an important step, though. Uh, which bit? What have I forgot? The part where you became maniacal about becoming this ultra runner and you were going to uh, like run across Russia and you were going to do yeah. the, the marathon in North Korea. <laughs> like you, and, and I connected you with my coach. Yeah. And, you know, you had these very big, ambitious goals about what very you were going to be doing. I got very thin <laughs> yeah. then. Do you know what actually happened there? So I, I was really keen on that. I was like, this is going to be the thing I'm going to do. Then mum passed, obviously, mm-hmm. and my back went. And my back went for about a year, and I just could not run. This week is the most I've run since then. Mm. I've run every day down, up and down Venice Beach. The first day I ran up to, and I, actually, it's funny, I was thinking of Chris, because um, I first run, rather than doing a, like a warm-up 20-minute run, I ran an hour up from Venice Beach up to the pier and back, and my legs were killing me. And I know, I remember him telling me off previously, 
for running too much yeah. at the start. So the next day I tried to run, I could barely do 15 minutes. Yeah, you overdid it on the yeah. first day and buried you for the rest of the week. Yeah, I, do you know what? I, I'll probably get back in touch with him because his coaching really helped. I mean, I got in great shape. I was running five days a week, half marathon every week. I got in, yeah, I was loving yeah. it. But yeah, big plans and then everything changed. But that's, I've always got big plans. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, yeah, then, then comes Bitcoin yeah, and comes then comes Bitcoin. the idea of like starting this podcast. Starting this podcast. And I reached out to you and I was like, Rich, I want to do a podcast. And told me the equipment. I was in LA when it happened. Mm -hmm. You sent me the equipment to buy. Bitcoin was at 20,000, which was great. I um, ordered the equipment. I contacted a guy who was in LA, went up and recorded the first episode. And here we are, man. Here we are, man. It's funny. I was reflecting back on this because I, you know, I follow you on Twitter and I've been, I've paid attention to like what you've been doing. And the great thing about it that speaks to your character and your work ethic is that plenty of people hit me up about how to start a podcast. And I'm happy to help and, you know, give advice or tell people what my equipment is and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, 99 times out of 100, they either never do it or they do it a couple in a couple episodes in, they have what's now called pod fade. Have mm. you heard that term? Well, I had it. So did I did my first three shows. If you go and look back at my track history, I did my first three shows. Then I didn't do one for two and a half weeks. And then I was like, oh, and then I haven't missed a week since. Uh huh. Consistency is everything. Yeah. Once you identify, like this is the day, or these are the days that I that I publish, like you have to adhere to that religiously. I, and you did it, like yeah. yeah. So you had that little blip early on, but you actually followed through. And you're a grinder, man. You know, it's <laughs> like you. We were talking before the podcast. Like you understand what few people do, which is how much work is required, not just to put on a show week in and week out, but to build an audience and and deliver like content at the highest caliber that you're capable of. Well, you you did a lot of the flying, didn't you, to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I never missed a week from the beginning, but when I started, I didn't have some ambitious goal of it turning into what it's become. I just flicked a switch and Julie and I started talking when we were living in Hawaii and and I had no vision for I didn't know whether I would even do a second episode, but I was like, this is fun. And I felt like I was comfortable in the medium and I know some cool people. And it was a very different time though. This was, this was late 2011. And at that time, you know, podcasting was not cool. It was not <laughs> cool that you were like a dorky, nerdy dude. And the technology was not quite there yet. Like if you wanted to listen to a podcast, you had to download it on iTunes on your laptop or your desktop. And then you had to bounce it to your iPod. And it was a process. Like you had to really be intentional about wanting to listen to stuff. And there were some people like, you know, Joe Rogan was doing his thing and Adam Carolla. Like there were people doing good shows, but it was there was no depth. Like it just dropped off a cliff after a couple of shows. And in the health space, there really wasn't doing many people doing anything all that compelling. So when I started, I got immediate positive feedback, like it jumped to the top of the charts. And I'm like, this is awesome. You know, there was no competition at the time. So it was very easy to do a land grab and, and you know, solidify your place and, um, and build from there. Had I started, you know, even two years later, I don't know, you know, if it would have been the same story. Well, it's like I said to you, there's a bunch of things that right. happened that meant I'm here now and the same with you. And, you know, you told me about the early struggles with it. Did you have you done every single one in person? 
No, like we were living in on the North Shore of Kauai when I started. Oh, okay. So I interviewed Julie, and then I, I was like, who else can I? Gabby, Gabby Reese was nearby, so I interviewed her. That was the second episode. Then I found some like super interesting like permaculture guy on the island. Interviewed him, and then I was like, well, I'm out of guests. <laughs> <laughs> so then I did a whole bunch of Skype stuff. Yeah. And then we moved back to LA, and I kind of hit the ground running. And I still did Skype interviews from time to time, but then I just realized like that's no bueno for what I do. And it's fine for certain people. Like I saw Sam Harris the other night and we were talking and he was, he was telling me that he does almost all of his interviews remotely and it works for his, his process and his goals. But for me, my whole thing is creating an emotional connection with my guest. Like that's the most important thing for me. And in order to do that, I have to sit across from them. I need to be able to read their body language and figure out a way in to connect with them. And if I do that, then I trust, I've learned to trust that whatever information that person is there to impart will flow from that. But if I put the information first and have a list of questions or things like it's it never works out. And when you're on Skype, you can hear the person typing and they're distracted or they're doing something else on their screen when you're talking to them. And and I know this from when you put books out, you do your guests on a lot of podcasts. And I did a lot of those Skype interviews. And I was like, 10 minutes later, I, I couldn't even remember the name of the person I was talking to. And I got into this to really create an opportunity to, to meet and spend time with people that inspire me. So being in person with them is, that's, that's like, you know, the whole, not the whole thing, but that's a huge part of the value that it brings to my life. Yeah, I think about 20% of mine are still Skype. Um, I'm doing a lot more in person, but for different different reasons, I tend to find when... So I interviewed a guy recently called Charlie Shrem. He's a well-known Bitcoiner, ended up mm -hmm. in prison. Right. Um, and he asked to do an interview, and I said, yeah, great, but I'm going to do it in person. So he invited me out to Florida. I stayed with him for a couple of days, and in staying with him and spending time with him and his wife... I got to really know them and know the story. And then what ended up happening when I was doing the interview, at one point I actually invited his wife on to speak and to find out what the experience was like for her when he was in prison. That wouldn't have happened with a Skype interview. Right. It, it just, it, and also I, I wouldn't have got to know them. So probably more into that emotional connection. And I've also done interviews at the SEC and the CFTC in Washington. Again, I knew I had to do those in person. Some of my top, more topical, like news-related ones, I can do them remotely. And, mm -hmm. But also I've got the kids, so there's like a limit to how yeah. much I can do. <laughs> but I'm getting in the habit of going out, traveling for two weeks, just hustling those two weeks, back-to-back -back mm -hmm. interviews. Uh, it is hard work, but yeah, you get to love it. But it's good. That's why you own the category right now. I don't know if I'd say that. I mean, well, there's, you, a, you, there's a couple of us. Definitely, in a, in a relatively short period of time, you've established yourself as a legitimate voice in the conversation surrounding Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And that sector is only going to grow. And you're there. Like, you're a person to be reckoned with in that space. And that's not a small thing. It gets weird, though, right? I mean, I, well, I don't know for you. For me, I found the process and what comes off the back of this a bit weird. Kind of like a backlash. 
that I'm getting used to. <clears throat> I'm, whenever you I, like it. Sometimes. You're a Twitter bad boy. Like, you just, I can, like, first of all, I think I texted you and said this. I was like, I read your tweets. I, I don't even understand what you're talking about because yeah. like, I'm not steeped in this world. But I do, I can tell that you're reveling in the conflict. Like, you're like, oh, let's roll up our sleeves. and, and you know. Some of it. <laughs> some of it. Some of it I'm not. Yeah. Like, when I've had, I don't know, I think it's maybe different from your, I mean, do you get trolled? A little bit, yeah, okay. but I, I don't, I, I never engage. So I, I've over the time engaged less, but I also troll back a bit myself. But the way I see the trolling is very English banter style humor. Mm -hmm. You know, the way I engage tends to be very much like I would down the pub with my mates. You know, it's the same stuff. We just take the piss out of each other for. It isn't. But you the lose aggressive. that tone in Twitter, though. Sometimes, it's hard, sometimes it's hard to tell that that's your intention. Yeah, perhaps, and and some a lot of times when I'll meet people, they say, "Oh, you're very different in person. You're a lot nicer." And I'm yeah. like, "I'm just joking around." Actually, it's getting to the point now. I don't have the time for Twitter as much anymore. It's been a great tool for marketing and growth. No, the weirder things are. I got stopped on the underground in London because somebody recognized me. That was mm -hmm. just very weird. I mean, you get that a lot. I got it with you at lunch when we uh, yeah. went up to That is a weird thing, especially since it's an audio format. Yeah. And that's happening more and more. And I had it on the beach the other day, another podcaster who has a Bitcoin podcast. and So that was weird. You get a lot of people at events coming and wanting photographs. Again, I find it a bit mm -hmm. bit strange. Yeah, that, that side of it's been a bit weird, but... And the incidental uh, sort of story that I have on that for you is my buddy Brett Morrison, yeah. who I actually invited to come by today. He couldn't make it, but that's so funny. This, is, this guy's I've been friends with him for like thirty years. Yeah, and uh, he's a big tech dude, startup entrepreneur, created and sold a bunch of companies. Always been really successful. Has been all in on Bitcoin. He's a Bitcoin maximalist from day one. He's always, you know, telling me I got to do this and that. And it's it's a situation where my whole life of knowing him, every five years I go, I wish I sh I wish I'd listened to him when he told me that. Thing. <laughs> um, but he texted me out of the blue not that long ago, and he's like, Hey, you should follow this guy, Peter McCormick. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's I, I had a, I put a uh, video about my it was about my kids up on YouTube about them talking about Bitcoin. All right, and you mentioned me or whatever. Well, and one I think of it them like, did. It, it like blew his yeah. mind. Yeah, and he's like, "Wait, what?" They're like, "Yeah." <laughs> I was with him at a barbecue recently. Actually, uh -huh. I caught up with him. But uh, but yeah, no, the, the thing, the whole thing's been very weird. I am conscious and always scared that I will fuck it up because I am capable of doing that. I'm I'm scared of doing that because I don't think I've ever had a I was gonna about to say a job I've ever enjoyed so much, but I've been listening to Rogan a little bit recently and he said these aren't really jobs because a a job is like you you have something you have to go to, you have to turn up and do your hours and leave. This is I don't know. I never watch the clock, right? I enjoy what I'm right. doing. I actually even enjoy getting on the plane go into the next interview. I really enjoy that process. Being away from the kids is rubbish, but... Uh, well, it's the adage, you know, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. And that yeah. doesn't mean that it's not a grind. It is. Like, there's a lot... You gotta... Like, it takes a lot to put up, to put up something that's good, but you're engaged in it, right? Yeah. It becomes a craft as well. Yeah. If you ever gone back and listened to your first episode... No, I won't do it. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I used to do? You know, we talked about those intros... I didn't even realize I could do this at the start. So I, with the intro and the outro, because I took my show structure from yours. Yours was my main podcast. I was like, right, I'm going to have music, my spoken intro, then I can have the interview, and then I can have my spoken outro and the music. So I followed a structure of yours. Mm -hmm. And the intro and the outro, it didn't cross my mind you could edit it, so I'd have to get it in one take. 
Oh, I used to do that too. Oh, like 50 takes yeah. the first time. And my audio engineer now, because I used to edit, yeah, I would like get four paragraphs in and then make a mistake and start over from the beginning. <laughs> my editor's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Just re-say the sentence. I'm, this is what I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, you know, so that that's what I started to do now and I can, you know, I can get it together and get it over to him. But yeah, 50 takes the first time. That, we, as we talked about before, that's for me is the worst bit. Uh-huh. I feel like such an idiot doing it. I, I hate listening back. I'm still the, terrible at it. It, and they're still too long and you know whatever you're not you're you're actually really good you're, you you do that thing where it's i guess it's you know what it is nobody likes their own voice right so you think it's terrible i listen to yours i'm like oh, he's such a fucking pro no i don't yeah i i, I cringe when i listen to my intros so it, as i wanted just to do a little start so the interview can start anywhere we've ended up getting quite right. in and i well, actually like, want to dig back into that there's some stuff that like i want people to know more about your story because i you know, it's been inspiring to me. You know, you're an uh, inspiration to me and a and kind of a mentor in certain ways. You're the busiest, one of the busiest people I know. Yet, if I ever need your help, you've always been there. But I want to dig into, if you want to talk about it, what happened in the past with you know the drinking. You, you came off the drink because there's a lot of people in the Bitcoin world that have addictions. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked about my recovery from cocaine addiction, which is now, I think, I'm approaching my fifth year now. I don't actually have a date, but but in doing so, a lot of people reached out to me. Even one guy today wrote to me today. He'd been in prison. He'd had a heroin addiction. And I don't know what it is about people with addiction and, and Bitcoin, but, you know, you got over an addiction, right? I did. But on the subject, uh, I'll get into that, but on the subject of Bitcoin and addiction, I mean, is it the gambling kind of aspect of it? I think The it prospecting is. kind of thing that, that pushes that button? I think so. Yeah, I think it's yeah. that thing that fires up the brain, the potential of winning, the potential of losing. Yeah. Yeah, I never had that thing, which is probably why I didn't buy a bunch of Bitcoin forever ago. <laughs> you did have some at one but, point. Uh, you told me, though. I did. It's gone now, I think. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know how to use Coinbase, to be honest with you. Um, but I do have an account. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, got sober in 1998, but never had... I mean, I did drugs, but it, I, I was pretty much a purist alcoholic. Um, and I'm just, you know, my story is not super crazy rock and roll. Uh, it's not romantic. I just was a kid who never felt comfortable in his own skin, had difficulty making friends and being social as a young person, and just felt like everybody else had the rule book for life that I didn't have. And I was kind of a loner, you know, I was bookish. I discovered swimming when I was a kid, and that was the one thing that I could do that I actually was kind of good at. So I just gravitated towards that and did more and more of that. And that actually helped my academics. So when I graduated from high school, I was somebody who had a lot of promise. Um, Graduated top of my class. I was being recruited by all these colleges to go swim collegiate at, at the collegiate level got into all the Ivy League schools, ended up going to Stanford, and there were a lot of people invested in my future. And I just thought, like, I'm going to kick some ass, get to college, discover drinking. I got drunk a couple times before then on recruiting trips, but really got into it in college. And it didn't take long before. It's not like hell broke loose overnight, but it just slowly ate away at, like, my ambitions. And before I knew it, I just didn't really care about anything anymore. My swimming career just took a nosedive. I didn't really 
didn't matter to me what my grades were in school. I just wanted to like, where's the next good time, dude? Like, where, where are we going tonight? What's happening? What's the plan? And that just started to like take over like bacteria in a Petri dish. And I was a functional alcoholic for a long time. I was always the guy who's like the last to leave the party and, you know, doing all this stupid, you know, blacking out from day one and, you know, the, the person who would get made fun of the next day and all that kind of stuff. But it started to get dark after college. I lived in New York City and then it really notched up because that's like Disneyland for alcoholics. Yeah. Somehow got through law school. I don't know how I did that because the drinking got crazy. Moved to San Francisco and then I, I was working in a law firm that I just was really unfulfilled and unhappy and just, you know, four nights a week, probably minimum, would just get blackout drunk and, you know, would drive my car on side streets home from the bar and would wake up in the morning and didn't know where my car was. And, you know, stuff started to go sideways pretty quick. I had a marriage that went left. I got two DUI. I moved to LA and then I got two DUIs like almost immediately after could, moving down here. That could have ended up a lot worse. Though, cause a lot worse. Remind me, one, yeah. did one of the DUIs, you got away with so what happened, it was a crazy, talk about the universe, yeah. like this is the universe working in my life. So I moved to LA, pretty out of control, my drink's pretty out of control, but I could keep it together at work and hold down a job, even though that was starting to get shaky. And in LA, LA is very different from living in San Francisco mm -hmm. or in upstate New York where I went to law school. If you get pulled over in LA, like they just assume that you're a gangbanger who's high on crack and has a shotgun under the seat, you know, and they have to, be, they have to proceed that way. So I was driving home from a bar at like 2.33 in the morning and I rear-ended a woman at the intersection of Crescent Heights and Melrose. Turned out that I injured her back and got arrested, spent the night in jail. Uh, and then two months later, and I blew like a 0.29, two months later, get pulled over again, three o'clock in the morning, driving the wrong way down a one-way street in Beverly Hills, blew a 0.27. The arresting officer takes my wallet, looks at my business card, and realizes that he knows my boss. He calls my boss because my boss represented the Beverly Hills Police Department and the LAPD and all these excessive force cases. So he, he called my boss and said, you know, I picked up one of your guys. I spent the night in jail that night too. Boss calls me into his office on Monday morning. He's like, I got an interesting phone call over the weekend. Uh, we need to talk. He's like, here's a lawyer. I don't want to get into your personal life, but you got a big problem and you got to solve this. Like, I need you. We were, work we were about to go into a trial on this big case that I was working on with him. And I remember going to visit this lawyer who was a super intimidating guy. And he just said, dude, he's like, two things. Like, you're an alcoholic. It's the first person anyone actually said that to me, even though I knew that I was. And the second thing he said is, you're going to go to jail. I was like, I can't go to jail. Like, don't you know who I think I am? Like, I'm this <laughs> upstanding, you know, young lawyer. I have oh. this trial coming up. I can't go to jail. And he's like, I'm not a miracle worker. You got two DUIs in Los Angeles blowing crazy numbers. You injured this old woman. Like, there's, look what you've given me to work with here, dude. Um, so that was terrifying. And you know, I immediately started going to AA meetings. Just, you know, I had to get court, kinds, court cards signed for the judge and all that kind of stuff. We still But drinking. what happened was on and off, like I was trying to stop and then I would drink and then I'd go to AA and I just didn't really know how it all worked. Then we're proceeding towards trial and my lawyer was trying to see what he could do to, the, my DUIs were in different jurisdictions. So he's trying to make sure that like, 
the judge in Beverly Hills didn't find out about the, the other case in the other court jurisdiction. And what happened was West LA was the jurisdiction for the first DUI. They lost the docket. They completely lost the file. And I was never prosecuted for that first DUI. Now, that does not happen ever. Like they, it was like it never happened. There was no evidence that I'd ever been arrested for a DUI. That's there was no paperwork on it. So I pled out on the second one and was able to get probation. And my lawyer was just like, it's a fucking miracle, dude. Like, I hope you understand what is happening here. Like, you have an opportunity. And I kind of heard him and I kind of didn't. And I was still very much in this mindset that I was going to solve this problem with my self-will. And yeah, maybe I'll go to AA, but like everything that I had been successful in in my life had been a result of me being a workhorse, like in the pool, in the classroom, in law school, never the most talented swimmer, never the most talented student, not the smartest guy, but like, fuck, if you sit down next to me, I'll, I'll, I'm going to leave the library after you, or I'm going to get out of the pool after you every time. And I was able to make my way in the world with that. And I, and I just assumed that if I applied that level of discipline to my drinking problem, that I would be able to solve it. And it took me a long time and I had to dig a very deep hole before I was willing to admit that not only was that not working, it was actually making the problem worse. Did you not realize you were an alcoholic? As in, what I mean is like, you'd convince yourself, I'm just a partying guy. I'm not, I'm not drinking on a Sunday morning. I'm just want to go out and have good fun. Was it Every kind of, excuse you could imagine, yeah. but deep down when my head would hit the pillow, like many years before I got sober, I was like, yeah, I'm, I, think I'm gonna, I think I'm an alcoholic. I would never say it out loud. I don't know that I would consciously admit it to myself, but I knew. I knew. And, you know, after, but in, even after the first DUI, it's like, well, everyone gets a DUI. Then I get two in two months. It's like, yeah, that's not normal. So, I mean, the life could have gone in a very different direction. Oh, it, was, it was going downhill, really. It was accelerating, going yeah. downhill really fast because people who are recovering alcoholics know this, but people who aren't might not, which is that when you stop drinking, you still have the disease. And the disease is doing push-ups in the background, just tr waiting for that moment that you pick up again. And when you do pick up, or if you do pick up, whether it's a year later or three months later or five years later, you pick up where you would have been had you continued drinking that whole time. Like, it's not like, oh, now I can drink a little bit. Like, it's just game on. And it's always worse than it was before. And for me, I just, you know, I just, I hit this bottom. It wasn't my bottom. What happened was after the DUIs and all of that, when I'm struggling to get sober, this is when I had like a marriage that ended on the honeymoon. And it was so emotionally traumatic for me. And I was in so much pain that I almost had to keep drinking in order because I just couldn't, I couldn't sit with those feelings. So the, it, that extended my drinking probably six or nine months or something like that until finally I woke up one day. Oh, in the interim, like I'm doing shit like waking up on a weekday morning when I'm supposed to go to the law firm and instead going to LAX and flying to Vegas by myself and then waking up naked in a hotel room, like having lost my wallet and not knowing how I'm going to get back. Like stuff like that was starting to happen. <clears throat> so I, one day I just woke up and I was like, I can't, I just, I can't live this way anymore. And 
I called this shrink that I was seeing who was trying to help me and just said, you know, find me a bed and a rehab like I'm ready to go. And I was on a plane that afternoon. I flew up to Oregon, went to this rehab thinking, I'm just going to do the three-week spin dry because I got my big important job in LA and you know, they're relying on me. <laughs> and and, and uh, I ended up staying there for 100 days. 100 days. Yeah. Wow. So what happened was when I got there, it was like I knew... I was very aware that my life had gone from this place of being someone with all this promise to essentially being in a mental institution. You know, it was like the lowest place that I could possibly go other than jail. And I just decided like, if I'm gonna be here, I don't ever wanna be here again, so I'm gonna just do what, everything they tell me to do. And the first thing they, the first assignment they gave me was to write out in longhand 10 episodes where you had a night of drinking, what your intention was, like, hey, I'm gonna meet my buddies for two drinks at the bar, what actually happened, how it affected me, and then how it affected the other people. And then I had to read that aloud to like the whole group of rehab people. And in the aftermath of, and I did it honestly and as openly as I could, and in the aftermath of that, one of the counselors pulled me aside and just said, look, man, I know you think you're getting out of here in a couple of weeks and you're free to go whenever you want, but uh, you have a case of alcoholism that we typically only see in like 65-year-old lifelong drinkers. And you remind me of this guy who was in here a couple of years ago, this uh, CAA agent named Jay Maloney, who famously represented all kinds of crazy, you know, high-list, A-list actors who struggled with addiction and ultimately committed suicide. And I knew who this guy was. I, I, I didn't know him well, but I, you know, I was familiar with his story. And I just, you know, that really landed for me. And I was like, whatever you want me to do. And so, yeah, I'll be here as long, I'll be here as, long as you think is appropriate. And I know you had one relapse, but mm -hmm. is that the only relapse you ever had? Yeah. The, you, you did like a competition, right? You had a so few beers. seven years yeah. ago, yeah, at like 13 years of sobriety. I was at the Ultraman World Championships yeah. in Hawaii, and it was 2011, and I had spent an entire year preparing for this race, and I was very intent on winning it, and I was crazy fit. I'd done the race in 2009. I did very well. I was like the fastest American. I ended up six, but this was gonna be my year, and I put all my eggs into it, and I just trained like a maniac, and I showed up like so lean and like crazy ready to go. And I had a, I had a not so good race. I ended up DNFing on the second day. Like I just, I, I had like a respiratory infection. It just didn't, it just went sideways. And I was so invested in that, in the outcome of that. And the outcome didn't match my expectations combined with the fact that I had, I had kind of gravitated away from going to AA meetings because I was training so hard, not because I ever questioned their merit or questioned whether I was an alcoholic. I believe, I never questioned, you know, I know that I'm an alcoholic through and through. I just sort of was like, I got that under control. I don't need to go to meetings, you know, three times a week or whatever. Like I'm training, it's cool. Everything is like, everything is like good. And in the aftermath of that experience and that race going not so good, I just found myself with my family at the beach in Hawaii and they were down the beach and there was a resort uh, beach bar up ahead and I walked up to it 
And I just ordered a beer, man. You know, like I didn't even think about it. And I had a beer. And you I didn't was like, my family was like, I was like, it was so quick how it happened. It was, it was so, it was such an unconscious move. Wow. And I had one in me and I was like, well, the family's down the beach. I'm gonna have another. How many can I get in me before they come back? I think I had four beers in like 10 minutes. And then I, I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta stop doing this. <laughs> Walked down the beach towards my family and my daughter, Mathis, who was quite young at the time, looked at me and she's like, you don't look like, what are you doing? And Julie saw me and I was like, I just drank. She, and she was devastated. And that night I was at an AA meeting. Wow. So it was like a, it was literally like a four beer, two hour relapse, which was a huge blow to my ego because at that point I'm very immersed in the recovery community here in Los Angeles. And I went with you once. once you, yeah, that's right. And once you've accumulated a certain amount of time, it's very easy to kind of walk around like you're the guy who knows what's up and you're the guy who people call when they need help and advice and you're the guy who's dropping the pearls of wisdom in the meetings and and that's not a good headspace to be in because the truth of the matter is is all of us only have the day that we're living in and yes you accumulate experience and wisdom in the time you know that you have being sober but it's not it doesn't inoculate you from you know, making that kind of mistake. And so, you know, making phone calls to my buddies in LA from Hawaii to tell them that I'd relapsed was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, But ultimately looking back on that experience, I think it was good that it happened because it really checked my ego and made me really appreciate what I had and how much I had to lose. And the fact that alcoholism is a bitch, man, and it doesn't go away. And if you're not diligent and relentless in your recovery program, you're a ticking time bomb for something like that to happen. And you know it could have been a lot worse. And a lot of people who go out like that, they just don't come back or they struggle to come back. And I feel very lucky that I was able to just get right back in. It's f- funny because my own recovery from cocaine is very different mm-hmm. in that I had, uh, I hit the rock bottom. The rock bottom day was the day I yeah, that's how I discovered Bitcoin. I was buying it on the Silk Road. I was working from home one day and the package came and it's like 10 in the morning. I was like, oh, I've got to try that. I, was, I mean, but I was in the same as you. I was going through that pain of a breakup. Mm-hmm. You're the only person I know who had a shorter marriage than me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's awesome now. You know, yeah. I would have never met Julie. Like, you know, I, I was just, I don't know why you know, I was going to get married to this person. You know, I just didn't have the emotional maturity yeah. to even really understand how or why I was making the decisions that I was making. But, uh, yeah, so, but I had that same pain. So, that I, you know, my mind was three months and uh, she was off with my buddy. And, uh, yeah, so I sunk into the drugs, but I had this day and I was doing it all day. And this part's the story I'm still too embarrassed to tell, but it wound up with me in an ambulance and the neighbors coming home looking after the kids and... I think I did it like once or twice after that. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Never done it again. Never been tempted, been surrounded by it and just walked away, mm-hmm. but never been to a meeting about it. Uh, I brought it, you to a meeting. Well, though. that was a different and interestingly. So <laughs> I have a funny relationship with alcohol. I don't, I can mirror some of your experiences. I've got blackout drunk. I've drunk too much, but I haven't, it's something I want to get rid of, but I actually just enjoy a drink. So most of the time it's, 
The, my biggest problem with drink is when I lose a day to a hangover. That really pisses me off. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that becomes more and more pronounced as you get older. Yeah, I see. I don't, see. I don't drink all the time, so I've I think I've only drunk two days while I've been here in LA, which for me is not bad. I'm, I'm going to explain this stuff, and I'm I'm not going to be able to look you in the eye because you're going to be looking at me like Pete. I tell you the funny. <laughs> you're getting all you're getting all uncomfortable, <laughs> I know, shifty I am. on me. I am. Listen, Did, let me just say this. Yeah. Let me just put you at ease. I have no judgment. Oh, I right? judge myself. Though. If you, but I'm telling you, I'm not judging you. Like mm -hmm. if. If I could drink casually, I probably would. I can't. If you can, more power to you. But I would ask you to ask yourself, like, what is your real relationship with it? What is it doing for you? And and how is it, you know, moving you away from the goals that you're trying to accomplish? Oh, well, that's the good point. So the last time it did that was when, you know, get on one of my flights, come out here. I find it very difficult to say no to a free glass of wine on a plane, even if it's 11 in the morning. And then I drink the whole flight. And then I get to Boston and I've got a few more hours. So I go to the bar in the hotel and I drink again. I get up the next day, I go to the interview. I'm really hungover. And after 45 minutes, I kind of wind the interview up because I'm just mm -hmm. in a bad way. And I went back and I was like, well, I'm never doing that again. That's dumb. I've paid all this money. You flew all the way there yeah. to have that experience. Yeah. I mean, I was coming to the States anyway and did all my other interviews. Um, I'm usually quite good these days at controlling it, but I do know at the same time, let, let me tell you the funny story about when we went to the meeting. I don't know if you remember this or even if you were there. But this guy comes up to me and he says, oh, you've got the best guy to be coming with. I was like, yeah, Richard's a great guy. He said, yeah, he's a really great guy. So he's like, what's your number? I was like, what? He goes, your number, like how long? I was like, oh, I don't have a number. And he's like, oh, you need your number because you get the badges and we know how long you've been you know, uh, in recovery for. I said, oh, I'm not in recovery. It's like, we all say that. I said, no, no, no. No, seriously, I'm not in recovery. I'm not an alcoholic. I just, you know, I want to, I think I might have. Yeah, we all say that. Uh -huh. And they end up walking off thinking. Yeah. And, uh, do you know what the funny thing as well is? The, uh, I, maybe it's, maybe you're similar. I'm always going to have addictions. The podcast is an addiction. Mm -hmm. It's an absolute addiction to do the best job I can to create the best quality product. When I was my healthiest is when I was vegan. I actually gave up drinking for three months. I was running regularly, but my addiction had become the running. I was running every day, you know, with my big plan. Yeah. I've always got to have something to swap it out for. And I think what's naturally happened is as I've lost my running, I've, I've kind of found something else. Um, but here's the, here's the mental jujitsu that I'm going to lay on you. Oh, no. All right. <laughs> yes. You are an addict. I'm oh, an yeah. alcoholic. I'm an addict too. We can get into a broader conversation about what addiction is because I have some thoughts on that. But removing the drinking, removing the cocaine, you're just taking away the symptomology of the underlying disease. So you don't do drugs anymore, uh, but you're not treating your addiction. So your addiction is going to grab at anything in your environment in order to take you out of whatever uncomfortable emotional state that you're in. So mm -hmm. whether it's running or podcasting or video games or shopping or always having to jump on a plane to go somewhere because you can't just be with yourself where you are. And that's what real recovery is, is addressing that underlying conditions. It's like the drinking isn't the problem. That's the solution. It's just a solution that stops working. And once you remove that, now you have to treat the condition. And that's where the 12 steps provide the relief, right? So right. you're walking around not doing drugs, 
but you find yourself grasping at whatever it is that's going to, you know, kind of numb you out or remove you from wherever it is that you are. And so my suggestion, like for me, yeah, I relapsed like eight years ago or whatever it is, but on a day-to-day basis, I don't think about drinking. You know, chances are I'm not going to drink today, hopefully. I don't walk around pining for it or I can walk into a bar and it doesn't do anything for me. But I have a disease called alcoholism. And if I want to be present in my life and I want to be a good dad and I don't want to be an asshole and somebody who's just reactive and indulging in my character defects on a moment to moment basis, I need help for that. And the 12 steps and the community and all this stuff that we do in this, you know, secret society uh, has really saved my life. I think it's why I'm still married. You know, it's given me tools to be in a relationship, a healthy relationship, all of these things that, you know, from an outsider's perspective, looking in really don't have anything to do with drinking per se. The 12 steps thing I did look into. I have looked at it once, and I struggled with the religion bit. Well, that's common. Yeah, you know, that's common. Is there like an eleven? But steps? it's not. It's not a religious program. It is a spiritual program, yeah. um, and it, it, it simply asks that you believe in a higher power. But that higher power can be one of your own definition and choosing. And you know, a lot of people, probably the vast majority of people that come in struggle with that same thing. And I think it's also a barrier that prevents people from coming in because they're like, I don't want any part of that. But all it's simply means is that you have to believe that there's something outside of yourself that's more powerful than you and yourself will. And for a lot of people, that just means the collective conscious consciousness of the group. Like here's a group of 10 people, 30 people, 200 people. They've all figured out a way to stay sober together. Maybe they know something you don't know. Right. Why, don't you, why don't you trust them and let go of whatever your bullshit fucked up ideas are and just take their counsel and see what happens. See, I know where the root of wherever I get down is. So I struggled with a lot of anxiety and panic attacks after the breakup of the marriage and certainly after the drugs. They really triggered it. But I found there was a pattern, and I think this might be related to the job where I've kind of manifested this situation, is that it it only happens when I'm at home in Bedford. I get the anxiety there. I get the panic attacks. As soon as I get on a plane, it's like a cloak is lifted. I mean, I've told you about this. Right. I want to be out here. There's but... a trigger in that town yeah, that's it's, activating it's... that in you. And so it's no mystery that you're constantly getting on a plane and flying nope. halfway across the world. Nope. It gets me away from it. and I'm, I'm out here. And what gone. is the impact on your kids? Because that's left un- unaddressed in your life. Well, so it's, it's not too... I mean, we're, you know, I've got a... Uh, arrangement with the mother on it was 50 50 anyway so the kids wouldn't see me every other week mm-hmm. anyway they they obviously want me there but they know i'm working as well so whilst i've manifested it i've also tried to build a new future i mean bear in mind i lost everything as well rich i mm-hmm. nearly lost my house lost yeah. my money so i've built now a situation that gives us a life they get it my daughter's actually fine like she's got a relationship with her mother and yeah the the new boyfriend, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. My son's different. His relationship's with me, but he understands what I'm building. And actually, if I'm out here with you, he'll be really happy anyway because you're like a hero of his. That's sweet. (laughs) But the point remains, like, what would it it feel like if you could be in Bedford and be comfortable in your own skin and not feel like I got to get out of here or I have anxiety because I'm in this town or in this house? I don't think I can, I don't think I can do it or want to do it. That's the weird thing. I, I, uh, you know, I've that was another thing about doing this podcast. It's like opened me up to the world. 
right? It's opening up to different people, different perspectives. I've got a different worldview from doing it, from traveling and meeting people and you know, spending time with people. And actually, I know I'm going to get out of there anyway at some point. Um, I know what you're getting at. You're like, what I'm, what I'm you're, getting at you're is... You've got to deal with it anyway and you yeah, can still yeah. travel. Like, I'm not saying don't travel. Yeah. I'm saying when you are home, what would it feel like if you felt comfortable being there? Yeah, um, I think it would be a much better life. I I would be less stressed. I wouldn't be... But it's a weird one, Rich. It's things like, you know, we're going to the root of what happened with the breakup and it's things like I can go into a pub or a shop and I'm worried I'm going to see people I don't want to see. And that never leaves me. I see where you're taking me. Right. You're like, I mean, this is all fixable. There's a, there's a recovery <laughs> adage that, that goes like this. Yeah. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, which means you can go all those places. Like I couldn't go to New York for years because it was so heavily associated with you know, a lifestyle that I had there. And now I have this amazing relationship with that city. I love going there. I have, you know, I have amazing friends there. It's fantastic. Early in sobriety, it's like, don't go to bars. But eventually with enough, you know, chops, you can go wherever you want and be, you know, be a Jedi and feel good and not feel threatened and not have those awkward um, emotions that, that percolate up when you run into somebody from your past. Because when you've gone through the steps, you've done that inventory, you've owned, you know, your part in all of these weird scenarios, and you've, you've made your amends to those people. Mm -hmm. So you can look them in the eye and be like, I'm good, man. And there's something incredibly empowering about that, that again, is very distinct from the drug use. The drug use just shines a light on the underlying problem. The underlying problem is your discomfort with running into those people. How can we, how can we resolve that so you can be fucking free, man, and go wherever you want and stand tall and look people in the eye? That's the fucking move. Right, okay. <laughs> we flipped this, let's, yeah. let's flip it back. All right, so listen, look. We'll talk about that a bit more uh -huh. afterwards. We'll have a little pep talk. The other thing that I do want to talk to you about is that whilst you are a vegan and you are an athlete and you've done these most amazing things, I always tell people to read the book about your Hawaiian challenge because it still blows my mind. You have become kind of an activist. It feels like you've mm -hmm. become an activist. With the veganism, how much for you is that is about the health and how much is it about the activism, or is it? does it not even matter? The best way to answer that is to kind of, you know, walk you up to where I'm at right now. I mean, I, you know, in the wake of getting sober, uh, I then became very intent on repairing all the wreckage that I'd created as a result of my drinking. And I quickly became a workaholic. Like I was like, I gotta be that person that I was when I went off to Stanford and had all these hopes and dreams. So I doubled down on trying to make that happen. And, you know, I'm pretty short shrift. I became a responsible member of society again and on the partnership track at this law firm and like doing all this, doing all the things you're supposed to do, right? And starting to accumulate all the things you're supposed to accumulate, all the trappings of being a successful person. But during that period of time, I just, a couple things happened. Like I didn't take care of myself physically. I just was eating junk food and takeout food in the law firm and hitting Jack in the Box at McDonald's on the way home. So I'd put on 50 pounds. Uh, so I was never like a big overly obese person, but I had some heft on me. And I had this like low grade existential crisis about what I was doing with my life because I was trying to prove to myself and to other people that I could be this person, but I never asked myself if that's what I actually wanted. 
And I was very much living at odds with like my natural God-given blueprint of who I was supposed to be, which I didn't know what it was. And that all kind of exploded right before I turned 40. I had this health scare and that compelled me to really reevaluate how I was living top to bottom. And it began with food, sent me down a rabbit hole and a journey in my relationship with what I was eating. And that, you know, that quickly became a plant-based diet, which revitalized me. I felt fantastic. I had all this energy again. I wanted to be an athlete again. So the entry point for me was health and it was vanity. It was like, I'm fat. I don't want to be fat. I want to be able to enjoy my kids at their energy level. And I tried a bunch of diets and just eating plants, ironically, was the thing that actually made me feel the most energetic and allowed me to lose the weight and keep it off. And then powered me through all these crazy ultra endurance challenges that I write about in my book. Um, but in the wake of that, now other issues like global climate change and the suffering of billions of animals every year have become much more important. Like I didn't get into eating a plant-based diet to save all the animals, but now my eyes have been open to a lot of what goes on behind the scenes in terms of how our food is produced. And I've, I've come to care a lot more about those issues. Um, in terms of the word activist, that, that's a tricky one for me because I think it, it connotes somebody who's like, you know, at all these marches and is waving a flag and shouting at people. And that's very much not my ethos. Like, And there's a lot of weird shit with that in the US right now. <clears throat> there's a lot of intensity in mm. our climate at the moment. And by climate, I mean political climate. And, and online as well, as somebody who's a, who's a Twitter activist, right, <laughs> sitting across from me. Um, and, and there are people who are very good at, at being climate change activists and animal rights activists and health activists who, um, who are very strident in their opinions and they're out there uh, making their voices heard and taking a stand. And I think those people are important. I, I've just come to realize and understand about myself that that doesn't feel natural or right to me. So my approach with all of these things, which are issues that I care about very much, is to live an aspirational life and stand in no judgment of other people. And this is what I try to do in my podcast and in everything that I share online to create a very non-threatening welcome mat for people who are curious about improving their lives to come towards me. So rather than be you know, the guy who's shouting down on the street, I want to be the lighthouse that attracts people towards him. And, and in the work that I do, I try to share a, uh, an empowering uh, message. I, I, I try to share about this sense that we, we all have the ability to transform our lives and to live more fully actualized and, and, and authentic to who we are. And that's going to look different from different people. And if you're interested in how I did it, I'm happy to share it, but I'm not going to beat you down because you decide to eat food that's different than the food that, that, that I eat. So let me tell you how I fell off the wagon because you'll know a bunch of people. This might be common. So I actually fell off the vegan wagon the day my mom died. What happened was in Ireland, they bury you in two days. So all the people who live around the village will just come and bring food. And there was nothing to eat apart from some cheese sandwiches. So I ate a cheese sandwich. And I kind of flipped between vegan and vegetarian. But what happened was when I started working hard again, like because I when I was full in on the vegan, I was cooking every meal fresh. I wasn't really working. It was great. Started working. I started having crap vegan diet. Mm -hmm. You know, the 
processed food, right. the pastas. It's never been easier to eat an unhealthy vegan diet. No, and I felt terrible. I got to the point, we were traveling with the kids. I was in San Francisco and I just had no energy. And we went out and I had a steak. And that was it. That was a year ago. And the other thing that I was also struggling with is my son went vegetarian, my daughter, which is refused. And she, I had to cook her meat at the same time, which is a really weird position to be in when you're trying to be a vegan and cooking some chicken for your daughter. But I've now, I've now recognized the other way around. And a lot of Bitcoiners hate this because they're all carnivores and meat eaters. I, st I look back when I was vegan and that I know in myself that's the healthiest I ever was. This is the best I felt. I was running 40, 50 miles a week. Right. And now I'm, I've put the weight back on. I'm not yeah. running. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not a surprise that your mother's death, you know, was not necessarily a direct impetus, but, you know, the emotional, you know, disconcerted sense that you must have had about yourself mm. is you know, prime territory to try to numb that out by, f with food, you know, yeah. and if there's plenty of it available, you know, I'm not shocked. Yeah. And then once you get off, like you don't, you've lost that momentum and it's just, it's, it's harder to recalibrate. Yeah. I am, I am tempting myself to go back. And I think if I do do it, I will probably start back on the vegetarian bit first, mm. but I've got to, I know it's, it's a bit like everything else. It's got to be prepared, right? You gotta. You can't just do it half-hearted. When I was doing it, I was learning to cook. I had had your book. Had yeah, your but you're book. in LA right now. Dude. I know it's easy here. You know? Go to Cafe Gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a lot of good other places to eat here now. So, okay, a few other things I want to just touch on before we finish. The podcast itself is obviously doing very, very well, mm -hmm. and uh, congratulations for that. Like you said, you were there when nobody else was uh, really doing podcasting. Where do you find yourself drawn to? with the kind of shows you want to do because you have a range of shows. I have my personal favorites. I think actually, do you know what my personal favorite was? I, I always mm -hmm. get the names. The guy who reported on the dogs in China. Oh, wow. Mark Cheng. Yeah. That, that's the, wow. that show. There's a moment in that show where there's a pause and it's for about 15, 20 seconds and he's clearly composing himself and you don't edit it out and you can really feel it. I mean, mm -hmm. that was really, really emotional, right? Mm -hmm. So, where do you self find yourself drawn to with regards to making shows with like deep, deep stories as opposed to doing those shows that maybe are attention grabbers and entertainment? Because I've always feel this kind of drawn both ways. I really need to cover X topic, but I really want to copy, cover Y. And do you, do you understand where I'm going? Yeah, I do. And I don't know that I have a, a thought out strategy. I really just have learned to follow my gut and my uh -huh. intuition and my instincts. And, and I, like when I stumble across a story or an individual, like I know it immediately. I'm like, I want to talk to that person. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that it isn't fun and cool to sit down with cool people that you've known of your whole life. Like, holy shit, like Tony Hawk's coming over I here. Know, I you can't know, believe like, you had Tony Hawk. Yeah. Like I couldn't believe he was going to, he would come all the way out to my house to do the podcast. So that's like amazing, but I will say that with somebody who is, who's been in the public spotlight their whole life or a, a large portion of their life, who's had tremendous success, and those people tend to be incredibly media savvy, and they've been in a million interviews. So the chances that you're gonna be able to go somewhere that no one else has or you know, like uncover something about their life that they haven't already talked about um, is unlikely. So what happens is you you tend to get interviews that are they're good and I 
I'm, I don't regret any of these interviews that I'm doing, but they're not the ones that are like, oh, this is the all time, you know, definitive conversation with this person. And when I sit down with somebody, I, that's my goal. Like as audacious as it sounds, it's like, I want to have the conversation that you've never had before. And you know, how are we going to make that happen? That's why people like Mark Ching or the other, the one, you know, the first one that you listened to mm -hmm. was an incredibly powerful, vulnerable conversation with a guy who was a sex addict and did some really like dark things that he shared about. So for me, again, like my sweet spot is vulnerability and that emotional, you know, weight. And that's what I'm always looking for in my guests. And thus my favorite episodes tend to be with people that no one else has ever heard of. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh man, this person's got a story to tell. Or, you know, maybe some people have heard of them, but they're not like, you know, in the in the zeitgeist. And having the opportunity to in introduce a story like that and an individual like that to my audience is, is thrilling. Do you have a personal favorite? Because I'm always asked about my personal favorites from mine. I mean, yeah, I get, asked that, I get asked that all the time. And yeah. it's not fair to even like, name anybody. But I will say that they, too, they do tend to be the ones that, that, that no one had ever heard of before. You know, it's like... Yeah, it was amazing to go to Jack Dorsey's house and sit down with him. And I spent like the whole afternoon with him at his house. We had a great conversation. I found him to be, you know, incredibly welcoming and warm. And, you know, I could go on and forever about what that experience was like. But he did a bunch of other podcasts, right? So mine comes out. He's on a bunch of different shows. And mine's different or whatever. They're all a little bit different. Um, but my favorites are, you know, like this is... You know, like John McAvoy in Britain, mm. who had some notoriety in England for his story, but people in America had no idea who this guy that was. Some and he story. just he just like exploded, you yeah. know, he just blew people's minds with that. So that's cool. You know, finding Josh Lajani, who was over four hundred pounds in the you know, down in the bayou in Louisiana and and uh not only sharing his story and he's so good at telling it. He's so charismatic and compelling and beautiful and lovely, but also kind of putting wind in his sails to now become the person that he is today, who is somebody who is out speaking and writing books and changing people's lives in his own right. Like I have a lot of personal pride and, and, you know, being a little, you know, colonel or, or, or catalyst in that guy's story. So it's, it is people like that. And you had your dad on recently. I did. Yeah. I haven't listened to that yet. Yeah. I want to listen to that. Yeah. So, well, it, it was, it was cool. Like my dad, you know, I, ha I have a, my dad and I have gone through it. You know, my alcoholism really, you know, is difficult for him. So emotionally we, we've, you know, we've had a bit of a roller coaster ride and we've gone through extended periods of being disconnected and we're in a really good place right now. And I credit the work that I've done in recovery to be able to repair the relationship and and to be close with him now. And having him on the podcast was something I always wanted to do. Um, or I should say a recorded conversation with him is something I always wanted to do just for posterity. Like I want to sit down and like when you get to sit down with someone and ask them every question you ever wanted to ask them, it's like, but you never do, right? Yeah. Because life goes on. Um, and I didn't know that I would ever share it, but I just wanted to have it and perhaps for my kids. But he wrote this amazing book, this historical biography of, of General Marshall. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, he's not on Twitter. He's <laughs> like, you, know, I could, you need a little help getting the word out about this incredible book that yeah. he wrote. So I was like, come on the podcast. So, but I was like, we can't just talk about George Marshall for two hours. Come on, we're gonna have to like talk about our relationship and I wanna know about your life. So he was game for it. And 
I walked him up right to the edge, I think, of what he was emotionally equipped to do. And then when I got there, I was like, okay, now I got to back it up a little bit. And now we'll talk about Marshall. But it was cool. It was great. I think that's your craft, though, knowing how how to build up a conversation, how to take it back. You know, you've learned that as a craft. But you, yeah, I mean, I hope I've learned something after like a thousand hours of doing this. Well, like you said, you won't listen to the first show. You know mm, why. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's definitely a craft that I'm trying to learn and trying to build up. It's very strange for me to do this, actually. Do you get nervous with any of yours? Yeah, I, I think I always get nervous. And now I'm like, look behind you, there's cameras in here. And like we we started about a year and a half ago, we started filming the podcast. So that adds a new element into it. You have to look good. It makes it a little bit more heightened. And the jury's still out. Like, cause, because the emotional intimacy of the conversation is for me the most important thing, you can't help but be impacted by the fact that you're being filmed at the same time. So um, I think that that adds a little extra element of anxiety. But yeah, I go into every one of these like a little bit nervous. Mm. I, certain ones I do, certain ones I don't. I go really, I get really nervous on my technical ones actually because I'm not very technical in uh-huh. the kind of Bitcoin world. This one I am. You say but, the wrong thing. How dare oh, you? Yeah. Do you get like people <laughs> send you emails? You got it wrong. Yeah, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> I get that a lot. I, but I always say Start I'm not technical. Start your own podcast. Dude. Yeah, that's what I've said. And, yeah. and I'll help you. Like, uh-huh. if you want to do it, start it, I'll help you. I'll tell you everything I know. This isn't easy. You know, there is a lot of work that goes into it. But it is a very strange thing to be doing it with you because from the moment I did it, I knew this day was going to come. Mm-hmm. Like, once I became dedicated. We're to back it. to the universe. But, well, I, knew, I just I knew I had to do it because, look, you know, like, you're a friend. You know, I can say I love you because you've done so much for me. You're like, you and Julie have supported me through some really crappy times and some good times and... And I cannot speak to you for six months, but if I message you and say, Rich, I need something, you, you're always there. You always help me out. If the weird number of things that happened, that had to happen, for this day hadn't happened, I don't know where I'd be in life. I don't know what mm. I'd be doing. But And that's where it goes back to the funny thing is like with all the terrible shit I went through with the breakup of my marriage, if I can ignore and partition my children not have had, having any pain from that, I wouldn't undo it. Because all this other stuff's come out of it, this right. other life, which is which is great. But yeah, I do want to just say a massive thank you to you um, because yeah, you're an instrumental person who's made a big difference to my life. And uh, thank you for doing this. You should, before we finish up, my conversations aren't as long as yours. Before we finish up, you should just tell people how to find out about your podcast, your book, yeah. and everything you've done because uh, yeah, they should do right. about well, it. Well, before I do that, I'll just say thank you. <laughs> I will receive that. And uh, I'm super proud of you, man. You've built something really meaningful and beautiful. And I think that these experiences that we have, these difficulties that we face and have to endure in our lives are our greatest teachers. And you know, none of us get out of life uh, you know, in one piece. We all have something that we're struggling with or that we're going through. And I think the healthy way to navigate these periods of our life is to treat them as opportunities for growth because ultimately that's what we're here to do. So no matter what is getting thrown at you, just look at it like, here's my opportunity to grow, man. Like I can either let this thing destroy me or I can learn something about myself and what led me to this place and how I got here so that I can inform a better path uh, going forward. And I've seen you do that and it's inspiring, man. And I just, a lot of respect for, for what you built and you're like, I can't wait to see where you're going to be in a couple of years, man. So it's super cool. 
And with that being said, you can find me. <laughs> <laughs> you nearly forgot yeah. that. The important uh, Richroll.com, R-I-C-H-R-O-L-L uh, is where all my stuff is. My podcast is just the Rich Roll Podcast. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Rich Roll on YouTube, at Rich Roll on Twitter and Instagram. All right. Cool. We did it. All right. Thanks, bro. Cheers, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Rich Roll. Rich is a bit of a mentor to me and the man who got me into podcasting. So having the chance to sit down with him and go through his incredible story was something I couldn't pass up. And look, I owe so much to Rich. He truly changed my life at a time when I was totally lost. You know, I was recovering from addiction issues and the breakup of my marriage. And yeah, he just came into my life and was there for me. Anytime I had a question, anything I needed, he helped me out and always said to me after Italy, he said, look, if you come out to LA, look me up. So I booked a flight, I went out, we hung out. And then when I wanted to launch my own podcast, he gave me all the help I needed. And it is such an amazing story too, from being a, you know, down and out really, battling his own addictions, narrowly avoiding prison and ended up in rehab to competing on the world stage at an Ultraman racing in Hawaii. It's really, really incredible what he's done. So listen, a big thanks to Rich for coming on the show and sharing his story with us. And if you've got any feedback or questions on this, please do reach out to me. My email address is peter at defiance.news and a personal massive thanks to Rich. Love you, man. Thank you for everything you've done for me. Also, I need to say a big thanks to my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com. Also, if you want to support the show, there's a number of things you can do. Please leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show, follow the show on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about the show, then please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news. 